Father, we turn our hearts and our minds now to your word, where we are reminded of this good news announcement that we are in Christ, that he is in us, that we belong to you because of what he has accomplished for us. Now, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, through what he accomplished in our place at the cross, we can be reconciled to right relationship with you. We thank you for the promise of your word that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise of your word that nothing can now separate us from your love because of what's been done by Christ. We thank you for the promise of your word that you will never leave us or forsake us. That we are yours forevermore and that Christ is ours forevermore. So Father, use your word today to shape us and to mold us and make us more like your son, Jesus. You transform us from one more degree of glory to the next. Father, use your word today to glorify your name, to edify your church. We ask you, Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can find your seats. And uh, as you have a seat this morning, I'm going to encourage me to turn, uh, encourage you to turn with me in your Bible uh, to Jonah chapter 3 if you're not there already this morning. Um, if you're our guest or here with us today for the first time, my name is Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And we are in week four of a six-week series where we've been looking at the life of Jonah. And again today, looking at Jonah chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 5. In January of last year in Avondale, Arizona, Carol Palish saw smoke rising from her neighbor's home, and it didn't take her long to realize that the house was on fire. So uh, in her bathrobe, she ran across the street, and the neighbor's doorbell camera actually picked up the moment that she showed up on their porch and started frantically banging on their door and yelling for them to get out. And inside the house was Nicole Salgado and her husband and their four children, and they were all asleep. So uh, finally, after about 30 seconds of, of banging on the door, of yelling, screaming, pleading for someone to, to come to the door, the door opens up, and she immediately jumps to the bad news. Your house is on fire. Get out. Move. And uh, so very quickly, moments later, you see the whole family emerge from the house. They run across the street to Carol's house where they had directed, uh, where she had directed them. And then seconds after the family escaped from the home, part of their roof started to collapse. So the story received global coverage and Carol Palish was rightly heralded as a hero. A hero. But I want us to consider the alternative here for just a moment. Uh, what if instead of walking across the street to warn her neighbors, Carol decided to stay home? What if instead she hid behind the excuse that she didn't want to be seen in her bathrobe? What if instead she just watched the whole disaster from her house because she was concerned about waking up their kids too early in the morning? You know, at the time, Carol didn't know the Salgado family very well. And so uh, what if she had said, I'm not sure I'm the right person to deliver this news, and she decided to wait for someone else to come along? Um, if this alternative story had been what had happened, not only would we not herald her as a, hero, uh, as a hero, we would say the exact opposite. We would say that she was selfish, and we might even go as far as to say that she was unloving. Because what type of a person, what kind of a person, could stand by idly and do nothing while their neighbor's home was burning to the ground? Now, I've titled this message this morning, The Gracious Gift of Bad News. No one wants to be the bearer of bad news. You know, as followers of Jesus, we know that our responsibility is to the proclamation of the gospel. And the word gospel means what, church? It means good news. 
As, as those who carry the message of the gospel, as those who announce good news, it seems counterintuitive that we would be those who were ever declaring bad news. Uh, but we quickly forget that the reason why the good news of the gospel is so good is because the bad news without the gospel was so bad. Oftentimes we miss the significance of the magnitude of God's love for us because we have not yet fully grappled with the reality of God's wrath against us. We're eager to proclaim the love of God. We are eager to proclaim the grace of God. We're eager to proclaim the kindness and the mercy of God, and we should. But, but oftentimes I wonder if we have a full understanding of exactly what his mercy is. Because what makes his love and his grace and his mercy and his goodness so good is that he's poured it out all on a people who were completely undeserving. We have a tendency in our modern sensibilities to shy away from any discussion whatsoever about God's wrath or condemnation or judgment or hell. But church, have we considered the possibility that ignoring the subject of God's judgment actually minimizes the significance of the good news? As John Piper who wrote, when the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to just news. The intensity of joy is blunted and the heart spring of love is dried up. To borrow a word here from Piper, we will never truly understand the intensity of the good news until we deal honestly with the severity of the bad news. We so quickly forget that apart from Jesus Christ, we were completely dead in our sins on a one-way fixed destination to a eternal judgment and wrath under the judgment of God. But God in his love and his grace and his kindness and his mercy made us alive together with Christ and he saved us by his grace. And without the full knowledge of the bad news, we will never fully appreciate the magnitude of the good news. And I would take that a step further in light of what we see in Jonah 3 today, that unless we honestly proclaim the bad news, we have not truly proclaimed the good news. Jonah 3 shows us that our only hope for true belief and our only hope for true repentance is going to come through the unadulterated proclamation of the total word of God. Genuine belief in the salvation of the Lord and genuine repentance of sin can't happen when we edit the bad news out of the gospel message. It's only through the proclamation of the total gospel, bad news included, that we can truly be led to salvation. And that's the heart of what we find at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles open, Jonah 3, uh, let's read together beginning with verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Everybody say second. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Two primary truths that we're going to draw out of this passage this morning. First, we see that we must faithfully preserve God's word as stewards who follow him in obedience. We must faithfully preserve God's word as stewards who follow him in obedience. Verse 1 shows us the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, we, we've seen this picture before, right? Like, this is the opening sentence of the book of Jonah. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So right away in verse 1, we see the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in granting Jonah a second chance. Here is the Lord, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, in spite of Jonah's hardness of heart, in spite of his rebellion, in spite of him walking in the opposite direction that God had told him to go, the word of the Lord once again comes to Jonah. And understand, it is God's word that comes to Jonah. 
So Jonah is not going to Nineveh to proclaim his word. Jonah is not going to Nineveh to proclaim someone else's word. Jonah is going to Nineveh to proclaim the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God gave Jonah the message that he would have him declare to the Ninevites. And in the same way that God's word came to Jonah, his word has been preserved and it has come to us. So we see from Jonah's example that God has delivered his word to us. God has delivered his word to us. He's delivered his word to his people. I want to look at very quickly five passages of scripture from the New Testament that show us how it is God's word has come to us. The writer of Hebrews, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews say this, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, just like we're seeing through the book of Jonah. Verse two, he says, and now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. So through the generation, the Lord had given his word to the prophets. He had given his word to priests. He had given his word to kings. And and so it's preserved as the Old Testament. Then he sends Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ comes proclaiming the word, and the words of Jesus are are preserved. And then Jesus promises his disciples in John 14. He says, these words I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's an important passage of scripture because oftentimes today uh, you'll see this debate as people read the New Testament. They might read something from Peter or James or John and they'll say, Jesus didn't say that, Peter said that. As if Peter and and Jesus or or, or Jesus and Paul are somehow in conflict with each other. But what John 14 shows us is that the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming was to bring to their remembrance all that Jesus had taught them. Meaning, if it has been written by Peter, by John, by Paul, it was given to them by the Lord. And it is to be treated as equally authoritative. So the word comes to his disciples who understood themselves to be under the authority and movement of the Holy Spirit as they wrote the words of Scripture. Which is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the same vein, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture, everybody say all scripture. All means all. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When the church falls into apostasy, it's Jude who writes in his short letter, Jude 1, 3, that they are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. God has delivered his word to us. Because we have the word of God preserved in the 66 books of our Bibles, church, this means we don't have to wander around aimlessly wondering what it is God speaks to us today. I heard someone say a couple of years ago, you know, that they'll, they'll hear that this, uh, someone just kind of bemoan and, and say, I want to hear the voice of God. And his response to them was, was read your Bible. And they said, no, 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 I want to hear the voice of God audibly. And his response was, then read it out loud. <laughs> like God, God has given his word to us. We don't have to wander around aimlessly wondering what does God speak to us today for his people. And the foundation of our commitment as a church to what we call expository preaching, what I'm doing this morning, is the bedrock conviction that God has already provided the word to his people. So like, I don't have to wake up on Sunday morning wondering, man, what, what clever story can I tell today? You know, maybe flip on the news. Maybe I should let that generate what we discussed today. Political ideas, sociological ideas, clever anecdotes. Like This is not to be the substance of our message. God has given his word to his people. And our responsibility is simply to be stewards of that word. 
Our Heavenly Father has not left us without a message. He has delivered his word to us. So verses 2 and 3, the Lord says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah shows us that God has delivered his word to us. We also see that he will deliver his word through us. Jonah's call was not to preach Jonah's words. Jonah's call was to preach God's word, the word that he had given him to the Ninevites. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, uh, there's a little bit of a distinction between what happens in chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 1, the Lord says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And, and then when you get to Jonah 3, 2, we, we see the Lord calling him. He says, call out against it the message that I tell you. So chapter 1 really emphasizes the substance of the message. Call out against them, for their evil has come up before me. But chapter 3 emphasizes the source of the message. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So the substance of Jonah's message, that the Lord was going to be declaring his message of judgment through Jonah. In Nineveh, he would essentially be God's mouthpiece. He would be declaring a message of divine judgment as a cry against their wickedness and their rebellion. He was entrusted here with a sacred stewardship. He was going to go to Nineveh and declare the very words of God. And church, as stewards of the word, it's our responsibility to ensure that we faithfully and accurately transmit the message that the Lord has entrusted to us because first and foremost, we have to recognize it belongs to him. This was not Jonah's word. This is the word of the Lord that had come to Jonah. I love this from H.B. Charles. He says, as servants of the word, it is our sacred duty to deliver the divine message. It is not our message. We do not have editorial authority over the message. We have not been given freedom to take the Thomas Jefferson approach to our Bible and cut out whole pages. Just because we don't like it or because it makes us uncomfortable, we have been entrusted with a sacred stewardship. As stewards of the word, it is simply our responsibility to deliver the word as it's been entrusted to us. Now keep in mind, Jonah was walking into the heart of a wicked and hostile city with a message of divine judgment. We know that about a century later, whenever the prophet Jeremiah came declaring God's judgment against the people in Jerusalem, they were ready to kill him. You know, so, so for Jonah, there's absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that this is going to end well. You know, we're going to see this more in just a couple of weeks. In spite of his own disdain for the Ninevites, in spite of his own feeling for these people, we see here that he obediently follows the instructions of the Lord. So pay attention here. Look at the shift now that has happened from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Dave highlighted this for us in chapter 1. You know, chapter 1 shows us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but then uh, a couple verses later, it starts out by saying, but Jonah. And, and Dave uh, very rightly highlighted for us, anytime we see in our Bibles the Lord giving a directive, giving a command, uh, giving some sort of commission, and then the next sentence starts out, but, uh, that's not a good day for whoever follows that sentence. Uh, anytime we see but following a direct command or divine imperative given by God, uh, things are not going to go well. And we've seen this for Jonah, right? Like he tries to run away from the will of God. It says he tries to flee from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord tracks him down and he brings him back. So look at this, the shift that's happened from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Jonah 1.1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah 1.3 starts out by saying, but Jonah. 
Jonah 3.1 starts out by saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah 3.3 says, so Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 3, so Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 3, so Jonah went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And so church, here's what we have to ask ourselves this morning. God's word has been delivered to us. God's will in the great commission has been revealed to us. So here's the question that we have to be able to answer. Whenever we receive the word of the Lord, whenever we hear the word of the Lord, whenever there's a directive, whenever there's a command, whenever there's an imperative, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Will the next sentence of our story start with the word but, or will the next sentence of our story start with the word so? One indicates rebellion. The other indicates that we are cooperating with the work that the Lord desires to do. As we saw several weeks back, we, we are living in a Romans 1 world. Like if you've not read Romans chapter 1 in a while, you need to go spend some time in Romans 1. You want to make sense of so much of what's happening in our world right now, go read Romans chapter 1. Our world today, it is characterized by idolatry, by sexual revolution, by hatred of God, hatred of fellow man, and even among churches and professing Christians today, there is a great temptation to compromise. And friends, listen, we're at a critical moment in our generation regarding the integrity of the gospel. The gospel message itself is under no threat because Jesus is going to build his church, but we better believe that Satan is going to make every effort that he can to distort the content of that message. The word of God has come to us. So is the next sentence of the story going to start with but, or is it going to start with so? I'm going to give us some examples. You know, last week, if you weren't here, I spent about 10 minutes at the beginning of each of our services speaking into the draft opinion that was leaked from the Supreme Court regarding Roe versus Wade. And we looked at scripture. We saw Psalm 139. We saw Jeremiah chapter 1. And so there's no question about God's heart for the unborn and his relationship to them. So the question that our generation of believers, we have to ask, the word of the Lord has come to us about the nature of life in the womb. So is the next sentence going to start with but, or is the next sentence going to start with so? The word of the Lord has come to us regarding the nature of gender, regarding the nature of human sexuality and God's design for these things. So is the next sentence of our story going to start with but, or is the next sentence of our story going to start with so? The word of the Lord has come to us revealing that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is our only hope for salvation and deliverance from destruction. So will our story read but or will our story read so? The word of the Lord has come to us regarding the punishment of sin, the eternal conscious torment of hell. So will the next sentence of our story start with but or will the next sentence of our story read so? This is my heart for us. If the Lord tarries in his coming, and, and the next pages, the next chapters of church history are written, written. Friends, it's my desire that it could be said of the people of Cross Community Church, Beaufort, South Carolina, that the word of the Lord came to them so. They went in obedience according to the word of the Lord. Jonah finally surrenders. He finally surrenders to the will of God, the direction that God would have him go. So finally, here we are. We're halfway through the book. Jonah starts making the trek to Nineveh. So we saw again chapter one, he resisted the will of God. He resisted the call of God. And Jonah went hard west. Like if you could go west of west, that's where Jonah went. 
Uh, went as far away in his mind from the presence of the Lord that he could possibly go. So chapter 3, Jonah's finally headed east in the direction that he needs to go. Verse 3 says that Nineveh was a great city. It was a very large city by ancient standards, and, and a visit would require three days. You just got to think about it like this. Like Jonah is one person traveling by foot, uh, preaching to tens of thousands of people. Because you could look at the actual size of ancient Nineveh and make the argument, well, this shouldn't have taken three days. But, but think about even a small community like Buford. You know, I could, I could spend the morning preaching in Port Royal, and then, you know, mid-morning, go to Ladies Island, and then later in the day, go out to Burton, go to Paris Island, go to the air station, and it would take an entire day just to do this, and I still wouldn't have even covered our county. Um, And and so this is the picture we see. Jonah probably has multiple stops that he has to make, so uh, verse 4 shows us that he goes about a day's journey in, uh, making stops in multiple locations, and verse 4 picks it up like this. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Everyone say believed. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So we've seen this morning that we must faithfully preserve God's word as stewards who follow him in obedience. Second, we see that we must faithfully proclaim God's word as heralds who call others to repentance. So it's a twofold task that we've been given. It's a task of stewarding and it's a task of heralding. Stewarding, we've already looked at. It's simply our responsibility to deliver the message as it's been entrusted to us. We've not been given editorial freedom over that message. But uh, in his book on preaching, Jason Meyer has noted that these two words, steward and herald, these are the two primary words that are used uh, to describe those who deliver God's word. Again, as stewards, we just deliver what's been entrusted to us. But he notes in his book that a herald does during a time of war what an ambassador will do during a time of peace, meaning a herald is basically going to ride into enemy territory carrying the flag of his king or of his country, and he's going to declare the terms to the enemy that's approaching. Typically, as you, you see this unfold in movies, it's, you know, turn back or perish, withdraw or be destroyed, go home or die. And this is effectively what Jonah is doing in Nineveh. He has been given this message, this warning of God's coming judgment, and it's been entrusted to him to be a faithful steward of that message and then to herald that message to the people. And we have to be able to hear this. We have to be able to hear the weight and feel the weight of the bad news and hear the message of God's judgment, or we won't understand our need for salvation. I love this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law, And it is because the law has not been preached that we have had so much superficial evangelism. We ask the question, how is it that we are rapidly advancing toward a generation who are becoming increasingly Christian narcissists who believe that God exists to affirm every one of their own desires? How, how is it that we, we've, we've become such a, a self-centered generation of believers who put ourselves at the, uni- at the center of the universe rather than Christ? I fear at times it's because we have not fully dealt with the reality of just who we were apart from Jesus. We've not dealt with the gravity and the nature of our sin. We have to feel how we have failed. We have to feel the weight of this. We have to understand just how impossible our salvation was apart from the divine intervention of Jesus. So Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, so evangelism must start with the holiness of God the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, the punishment meted out by the law, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. It is only the man who is brought to see his guilt in this way who flies to Christ for deliverance and redemption. 
Why, why do so few, it seems, urgently run to Christ for their salvation? Could it be because we have not been faithful in declaring what it is they need to be saved from? Could it is that we have, be that we've not been totally honest about the reality of, of the bad news, that we have not in love proclaimed the message of God's coming judgment, as was entrusted to Jonah? Yeah, for, for Jonah, th- this was risky business. This is risky business. Go and call out against them. That, that was the message the Lord gave him. Call out against them. So, so here Jonah goes, and he calls out to them, one sentence, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This, this was the gracious gift of bad news. For the people to hear that, that their judgment was coming, there was going to be an opportunity to repent. 40 days, the Lord had set this out. 40 days, there was going to be an opportunity to come. This was the gracious gift of bad news. Warning them, judgment is coming, and yet there's an opportunity to repent. Now, it's, it's pretty impressive to me. In the Hebrew, the entire sentence for Jonah's sermon is only five words. Like, my title was longer than that today. And, and yet, it, we, you, it could be argued, you know, did Jonah actually preach more? Did he expound on these things? But we really don't know, so I don't want to read into something that's not there. What we do know is that his message was very effective. The people heard uh, of the coming judgment of God in 40 days, and, and they bring themselves to this place of repentance. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah's message shows us a couple of things. First, it warns us, the bad news, judgment will come to all who rebel. Judgment will come to all who sin, to all who rebel, to all who fall short of the glory of God. Church, our God is a loving father, but he is also a just judge. There's so much discussion in our culture today about justice, and sometimes I wonder if we really understand what that word means. God is a loving father, but he is also a just judge. In his justice, in his righteousness, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. If he's not a good judge who refuses to punish sin, then he's not just. And if he's not just, then he cannot be loving. His love and his justice go hand in hand with each other. And God had seen the depth of their wickedness. God had seen the magnitude of their evil deeds. He said, these things have come up to me in chapter 1. So he lays out the terms, 40 days. And you know, we'll see this more over the next couple of weeks. So I don't want to get too far ahead of, our, uh, of ourselves here. But you could make the argument that this message of judgment was actually the easiest part for Jonah to preach. Because we're going to see in the rest of this book, Jonah had a deep disdain for the Ninevites. Jonah was eager to see these people be destroyed. You could make the argument that this was actually the easiest part for him was proclaiming, your judgment's coming. Like, if Jonah was the neighbor to the Ninevites, he was happy to watch their house burn down to the ground. You could make the case that this was, this was, that was actually his posture towards them. That was heart towards them. But we see elsewhere in the Old Testament that even when nations fall into great wickedness, the Lord invites them to repent. This is Jeremiah 18. The Lord speaks to the prophet, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. The condition here is if. If a nation turns from its evil, if that nation turns from its evil, when Jonah preaches yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. He is holding out hope for the Ninevites that there is a potential that the disaster might not come. And listen, we hear the urgency of Jonah's message echoed in the ministry of Christ. You know, sometimes we talk about this this message of judgment. We talk about this message of repentance as if it's just something from the fire-breathing prophets and preachers. 
But we jump forward to the New Testament and we see what, what was the message that John the Baptist came proclaiming as he prepared the way for Jesus. The message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus just picks that mantle right up. It says he goes about proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message he was preaching and proclaiming everywhere that he went. You know, we, we rightly tend to think of Jesus as showing compassion and grace for those who are weary and suffering and beaten down by their sins. And yet, church, we have to be honest in, in recognizing there are moments when Jesus does not hesitate to warn of coming judgment and to stress the urgency of the need of repentance. I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a moment to Luke chapter 13. And I want to look at this passage as the words of Jesus because, you know, I, I cringe a little bit sometimes when I hear Christians, whether it's a, 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 someone teaching or someone who's a writer, someone who's an author, you know, they'll, they'll say things like, well, Jesus never uses fear to motivate people. And I would just ask you, like, are you really sure about that? Like, is that a statement that holds up to Scripture when, when we see it? You know, absolutely. Like, we, we don't want to be people who are just employing guilt and shame and, and domineering authoritarianism to, to begrudgingly, you know, just beat people into begrudging submission. But we have to be honest in recognizing Jesus does not shy away from preaching this message of repentance and warning of coming judgment. So a little bit of context here, Luke chapter 13, um, just because we're jumping right into it here. Luke 13, it recounts how Pilate had killed some Galileans as they were offering their sacrifices. And uh, it also references a tower that fell and led to the death of 18 people. And Jesus uses these two events to warn of coming judgment and to stress the urgency of repentance. This is Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This message of God's coming judgment, this message of, of his wrath against sin. Friends, this is not just the message of some backwoods, fundamentalist, fire, fire and brimstone preacher. These are the words of our Savior. These are the very words of Jesus. We hear the words of our Savior, repent or perish. We cannot forsake our responsibility to warn a lost and dying world that the day is coming when the fullness of God's wrath against sin is going to be poured out and the righteous are going to be raised to eternal life in Christ and those who rejected the message of the gospel are going to be raised to eternal death and hell. And church, we have to feel the urgency of this. We have to feel the urgency of this as our culture drifts further and further and further away from Christ. And in many ways, as the church drifts further and further and further from Christ. We cannot find ourselves like Jonah, indifferent to the eternal suffering of our neighbors. Now, there's a, a, a famous video clip that came out. I think it was about 15 years ago. I remember watching it when I was uh, like a sophomore, junior in college. And uh, it's from the comedian Penn Jillette. 
Um, uh, he, again, if you don't know Pendulati, he's, he's a comedian. And, um, and so he recounts a story one night how after one of his shows, there's this really big guy who, who comes up to him and uh, was very complimentary, kind of waited on him for a while after the show, but very complimentary. He said, not at all flattery, not disingenuous, was very, very grateful for, for the show. And, um, and, and Pendulati just acknowledged, said, you know, now I, I'm an atheist. I'm not a believer. He says, I know that there is no God. And, and uh, he, he said, but this guy comes to me after the service and, and very genuine, not at all superficial. He hands him this small Bible and on the inside of the Bible, there's some personal contact information, and, and, and this man effectively shares his faith with, with Penn Jillette. And, and so he records this video just sharing about this experience a little bit, because he, as an atheist, I thought, brought a very unique perspective to this conversation. So again, this is someone who, who does not believe in, in Jesus, does not believe in the things that we're talking about this morning, and yet this was his perspective about this man who was sharing his faith. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. This is an atheist, not at all a person of faith. He says, I don't respect people who, are, who do have faith but don't share their faith. And here's why. It's a longer paragraph here. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell for not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. He asked this question. I want this to sit in our hearts this morning. He asks, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you and this is more important than that. This was the perspective of somebody who, who believes there is no God, somebody who is not a professing follower of Jesus, looking at people like us and saying, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share this if you actually believe it's true? Again, for Jonah, he, he was happy to see God's judgment come upon these people, and sometimes I wonder if that's the case with us. Is it the, the reality that we're just indifferent to these things, that we just don't care, that we've, we've grown cold and callous and numb and immune to the reality of eternal suffering? I mean, to the extent that many professing Bible teachers and followers of Christ just edit that whole part out of their Bibles. Church, we have to grapple honestly with these things. Like, If it is self-centered to sit by idly while your friend's house is burning to the ground, how much more self-centered and unloving that we would sit by idly while we watch people perish for eternity. These words from Charles Spurgeon have always resonated with me. I think I've shared these before, but... I have these on the wall in my office. I have this on the inside cover of, of my Bible. And I want us to feel this this morning. I want us to feel his burden for the lost because this should be our burden for the lost. Spurgeon said this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. That was his perspective. If that's what's coming, if God's judgment against those who refuse to repent, if his wrath is coming for those who refuse to believe, if, if hell is in the future, of those who reject Jesus, he says, then at least let them leap there over our bodies. He says, and if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Friends, every time we edit the bad news out of the gospel message, we take the boat west. Every time we skip what makes us uncomfortable, we take the ship to Tarshish. 
We effectively are trying to flee from the presence of the Lord by rejecting the word that he sent to us. And so our response here, listen, it's, it's not that we want to be the angry people standing on the street corner with bullhorns shouting people down, but with tears of brokenness in our eyes and the flame of love in our hearts. We have to be willing to extend to others the gracious gift of bad news. God's grace and his kindness in warning them. Because again, this is, I think, sometimes the pushback to a message like this. As you go read Romans 1 and 2, and there's always the person like, no, 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 no. Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And, and friend, I would just encourage you, go read all of Romans chapter 2 and respond by showing us what God's kindness is. Because what God's kindness is, it's not, it doesn't mean that God is just like a friendly mailman. No, no, what Romans 2 shows us God's kindness is, is that he is withholding his wrath against our sin. That is his kindness. What happens sometimes is, man, we fall headlong into sin. We fall headlong into idolatry. We fall, fall, fall headlong into uh, sexual rebellion against God. We fall headlong into hatred for our neighbor or even hatred of God and, and, and rejecting his word and kind of following half-heartedly. And this is what we'll tell ourselves. We're like, well, he hasn't struck me dead yet, so I guess everything's fine. And we don't recognize the fact that we have not been taken out. That is God's kindness. He extends to the Ninevites 40 days, and he did this in the time of Noah, 120 years. You and I right now, we are in the forbearance, of the, the forbearance period of God's wrath. That is his kindness, is that he's withholding that from us. And he has withheld that from us through our faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot edit this out. But we have to be people who are willing with broken hearts and tears in our eyes to share the bad news. But we only share the bad news, right, because it magnifies the good news. We share the bad news because it magnifies the good news. Because Jonah's message shows us that judgment will come to all who rebel. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. It also shows us that salvation will come to all who believe. And this is what's so powerful about what happens in verses 4 and 5. We sometimes are so afraid to dip our toes into these things and address these subjects. But here's the hope that we have. It tells us that they believed. They heard the message and believed. We can trust God's word to do the work that he has promised it will do. God sent his word through Jonah because he wanted to show mercy to these people. He desired to show the mercy. He desired to call them back into repentance. Yes, judgment is coming for all who rebel, but the good news of the gospel church is that salvation's coming to all who believe. Amen? Amen. We rest in this. This is the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. The situation was so bad in Nineveh that God had to send someone from outside the city. He's got to call somebody from several hundred miles away. Like, that's how sinful they were. They hear Jonah's message, and verse 5 says they believe God. And the evidence of this is that they mourn over their sin. They call a fast. And the salvation of the Ninevites demonstrates to us that there is never a person so wicked Never a person so wicked that they have outsinned the grace of God. Now, Jonah, of all people, should know this. Jonah, of all people, should know this. God had just given him his own second chance. And this is more of what we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. It just, just how mind-blowing it is that, that sometimes we are unwilling to extend the same grace and mercy to others that God himself has shown to us. Jonah, of all people, should, should know this. So what I want to do is we close out our time together this morning. I want to share just a brief word uh, to two distinct groups. I want to talk to those of us who profess to be followers of Christ. I want to talk to those who maybe would not profess to be followers of Christ. Challenges for us today. So if you are a follower of Christ, what we've seen this morning is that the word of the Lord has come to us. 
God has, has given his word to us. God has written his word to us. God has preserved his word for us. And so I want to ask us again, is the next line of your story going to start with the word but? Or is the next line of your story going to start with the word so? He has called us to make disciples of all nations. So are you submitting to his will or are you resisting that call? Has the Lord placed a calling on your life to share the gospel with a friend to share the good news with a family member, to share the good news with a coworker, with a neighbor. Maybe he's even called you to take it to a different country, but the boat west sounds better. It sounds easier. That's, that's the path of, of least resistance. And I just wonder, what would it look like for you in the coming days? What would it look like for you to do this in the coming days, to approach someone that you know with, with great compassion for them and sincerity of speech, to come to them and say, I, I know that you're not a person of faith, I always try to be really, really careful to not impose these things on you because I value our friendship, and at the end of the day, I'm going to love you no matter what. But as your friend, I believe with every fiber of my being that eternity truly rises or falls over what we believe about Jesus Christ. Would you give me the opportunity to share these things with you? What would it look like for you to do that? Not, not to be the person with the bullhorns screaming in their face, but with tears in your eyes and brokenness in your heart and great sincerity in your voice to ask them for an opportunity to share not just the good news, but also the bad news. Because without the bad news, we won't understand the good news. And, and church, here, here's the reality. I, I have failed in this. I would imagine every one of us in this room who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have failed in this. There's probably been a moment where we have resisted what it is that God has called us to do in sharing the good news with someone else, to, to warn of coming judgments to those whom we love the most. The reality is that we have all failed in this in some regard. So no matter where you have failed or resisted his will, today I pray that you will find hope in this one reality. No matter how you failed in this, no matter how many times you have resisted God's will, find hope in this one simple reality. The Lord called Jonah again. He called him again. In spite of his hardness of heart, in spite of what he rejected, in spite of how he rebelled, the Lord in his grace and his mercy and his kindness, he called Jonah again. And so today the word is coming to you once again. So what is the next sentence going to start with? Is it going to start out with but or is it going to start with so? The Lord called Jonah again because our God is the God of the second chance. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that, that's my challenge to you today. Where may you be resisting his word? Where are you resisting his will? And is the next line going to start with but or is the next line going to start with so? Now I want to talk to you, those of you who may not be followers of Jesus. Because today, what the Lord offers to you is the very gracious gift of bad news. He's come to tell you that the house is on fire. He's come to show you today with great urgency to plead that, that you can, in fact, be rescued from this. You can, in fact, be saved from this. That a way has been made so that you do not have to fall under his destruction. Our God, yes, he's a loving father. He's a just judge. He will leave no sin unpunished. But this is the good news of the gospel, is that the condemnation and the wrath and the judgment that you and I deserve because of sin, Jesus Christ has taken our place in death and absorbed the wrath that we deserve. That is the good news. In spite of how we had rejected God, he has made a way through his son Jesus Christ for us to be saved. 
for us to be rescued from our sin, for us to be pulled out from the grave. And he has issued that to us today. This is his kindness. This is his mercy. Judgment is coming, but you don't have to fall under it. A way has been made for us to be saved. The judgment we deserve because of sin has been poured out by Christ, on Christ, the punishment that we deserved. And the message of the gospel tells us that on the third day, he walked out of the grave He secured the victory over sin and death, and today he offers salvation to all who would repent and believe. So what's your next move going to be? Is is the next line going to start with but, or is the next line going to start with so? So you you bow your heads with me as we, we close our time together this morning. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, where have you taken the boat west? Where have you resisted his word? Where have you ignored his call? Could it be that we we have, even without maybe knowing it, been guilty of editing the gospel message by taking out the bad news? We have to recognize when we do this, we, we minimize the significance of the good news. Our God's the God of the second chance. The Lord called Jonah again. And today, another opportunity is extended to you to turn around and go east. To submit to his call, to surrender to his will. To be an obedient steward and herald of his word. Our God's the God of the second chance. Take him up today on the second chance. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today he offers you the gift of bad news so that you will understand the good news so that you will fully understand the magnitude of his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness toward you. And say the invitation for you is is simple. Yes, bad news, judgment is coming. Good news, you can be saved. You can be rescued. If you will, in faith, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, call on his name for your salvation, repent of your sin, which is effectively as if you were going west and you are now starting to go east. You have turned a 180 opposite direction. That's what he calls us to. When we do this, he fills us with the power of his Holy Spirit. He equips us with everything that we need to faithfully follow him. And that's his invitation for you today is to repent, is to turn to him and to rejoice in the good news of the salvation that's been offered to you in Jesus Christ. So Father, as we come to the table this morning, as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, we come rejoicing that the wrath we deserved was poured out on him instead of us. We thank you that he, even though he was sinless, took our place in death. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become righteous before you. We thank you that he has paid the debt of our sin. We thank you that our sin has been canceled because of his perfect finished work. Help us to rejoice in that work today. Father, I pray that even now in this room, as you stir our hearts, that you would draw us into repentance of turning from our rejection and rebellion of you. That as your word has come to us today, 
the next line would read, so they went in accordance with the word. So fathers, we, we come to the table this morning as we continue to confess, as we repent, as we rejoice and as we sing. I pray that it would all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you today. Be glorified in the praises of your people. Christ be magnified in this place. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.